This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Good evening to everybody and welcome to yet exciting installment of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele and tonight I will briefly weigh in on a very topical issue, the issue around the, 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 the motion of no confidence against the president. And I think it will be just be criminal for us not to touch on that. But secondly, I'm going to have a very exciting engagement with uh, uh, the, the head of trade and economics um, office, um, Itai Malcher. Uh, I'm quite privileged to, to, to have him in the studio tonight. Um, I implore you to weigh in our conversation. As always, I appreciate your thoughts, your comments. Um, drop me an email. My name is Nimrod at Chai. Nimrod at Chai FM. I beg your pardon. And of course, our landline, I mean, our SMS line is 34519. The Twitter handle is at Chai FM. Um, it will be criminal again not to acknowledge the guys that really kept you guys uh, busy and entertained. Uh, uh, a big thanks to Howard Foreman, Sasha Star, you've been absolute stars always, um, Tabo. And of course, I'm not flying solo. I normally have uh, a very competent uh, producer here, Vusi, uh, who will be keeping us uh, alive and, and making sure that everything goes well. Like I said, before we started the conversation tonight, um, it's quite important for us just to reflect very briefly on, on the current and topical issue um, on the land that is that of the motion of no confidence um, towards the president. Um, I could not imagine what everybody's uh, think was thinking. I mean, this is one issue that really kept South Africans, literally the globe as well, uh, 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 literally um, on, on top of their feet. What is critical for me as... Uh, as I'm trying to analyze these kinds of conversation and where we are now, because one has to look at this from from where we are in terms of what is the status. Okay, um, what are the, some of the things that brought about the the motion of no, of no confidence? Firstly, it was the issue of Nganja. It's a known fact, and we have issues around the Bogus Intelligence Report, which supposedly um, are, you know underpinned the dismissal of the, the ministers, i.e. Uh, Minister of Finance and his deputy. We have had the state kept a report, um, which um, also underpinned the reshuffling of the uh, cabinet, which led to another uh, critical issues, of, you know, which became the watershed in the country. Um, what, we, what is it that we've seen? We've seen how the country, uh, you know, been downgraded by, you know, rating agencies, um, there's also allegations around um, the extent to which the um, Gupta family has has really uh, hands in terms of appointing not only the ministers but also the boards and executives of um, SOEs. This is what we know for a fact. Um, but what has been the consequences of the status quo, if you like? I mean, let's look. Let's look at the unemployment rate. I mean, South Africa sits with you know. You know, given a given given a different type, types of definition, we're probably sitting around uh, 30 plus uh, unemployment rate. The crime and corruption is exceptionally high, and we currently, you know, um, not enjoying the benefits due to the uh, um, downgrading of the economy. And for me, the real issues around transformation is still lacking. Um, and of course, what has been the what has been the fundamental consequences of the the the, the State capture report. I mean, we have lost close to about 10 billion rands as a country. This is resources that could have been uh, earmarked or spent on credible government projects. So let's take a step back. 
now that you've painted a picture in terms of what have been the consequences um, following the kinds of allegations leveled against the president, which brought about the motion of no confidence, um, it, it is just mind-boggling, if you like, to to look at how or the kind of narrative in support of the status quo. Um, you've seen some of the ANC leadership talk about, you know, using expressions such as liquidation of the ANC, attempted coup, unfounded allegations against the president, or acting unparliamentary, and so on and so forth. So these are kinds of questions that bedeviled majority of us at this point in time. And and maybe just to try and make sense of this very complex um, cutthroat conversation. I'm joined in studio by um, our normal commentator, Mr. Justice Ndaba. But before we get to Mr. Justice Ndaba, but also want to appreciate and welcome my key guest tonight, uh, uh, Atai Melcha. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, Doc. Good evening. Happy to be here. <laughs> the pleasure is mine. Let's start with Mr. Ndaba. Um, now that we have really painted this picture in terms of where we are, um, we have noted the kind of narrative that, that underpins the, mode of no, of the, the, the motion of no confidence. We are quite certain that there's anything that we are very much aware of. Unemployment, it's not a debate, it's a fact. Okay? Um, crime is quite high. It's not a debate, but it's a fact. Uh, ordinarily, these things happen under a particular leadership. Um, surely, should this could become an empirical evidence that ordinary ordinar, uh, parliamentarians need to be looking at as a way to, you know, to express their discontent or their, you know, their, their concerns regarding the president. Where do you think the wind is going to blow tonight? <laughs> good, good afternoon, uh, Doc. Um, tonight is going to be difficult. In fact, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I didn't watch the proceedings personally. Um, I don't know at time maybe he did, but from what I heard on the radio, the debate seemed to sway away from the vote for or against, and it tended to go towards the issue of do we vote with the opposition or not. And therefore, you could see that um, the whole structure of the debate changed. It was now ANC on the defensive to say we can't be dictated to you guys from the opposition bench, and uh, if you want to take us out, take us through a vote. So... From And this is the narrative I had on the radio. So I'm not too sure as to when we followed the debates as to was it in reality some of the speakers what they pushed for. If that is the case, therefore, if that is the narrative, um, the likelihood is that the NC uh, MPs, therefore, would tow the party line. Look, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, it was very clear amongst the the, the opposition members. Yeah. I mean, Musa Mane, yeah. uh, um, you know, uh, EFF, mm. uh, IFP. All of them were very. Look, we're not out. We're not there to oust the president. Yeah. We are there to oust, um, you know, the the, the, the NC, but yeah. the president, an individual. They're very clear. Yeah. From you the know. NC speakers, what happened? Well, from the NC speakers, I mean, they're all defending. Mm. Uh, I mean, Makula, uh, the minister of arts and culture. Um, all missed the point, in my view, that the the the, 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 the position of the uh, of the opposition is not so much about the NC as such. They say, look, we are ready to take you head on. Come the elections. For for now, the motion of, of no confidence, it is not towards the governing party, but it's towards the individual. Let's address this particular individual because it's not only hurting the ANC, but it's also hurting the country. 
So that in a nutshell, that that is a position of uh, uh, the, the opposition party. Yeah. It, 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 therefore, I think I'm just quite happy that the the the, the voting process went secret vote way in a way because then that will assist. What I was concerned about is that there were a lot of caucuses just prior to the actual voting happening. You know, we uh, the different parties went into their caucuses. Therefore, you rally the troops when that happens, which then tends to sway. Um, the vo- obviously, in the booth, you are on your own. But <laughs> it could be that the, 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 in those caucuses, you know, even a lot of people who would have tended to follow the conscience, uh, their conscience, as we as, as it was said, might now be swayed in the caucus. So if that is the case, you would likely to see it definitely across party lines. But my sense, uh, perhaps you can just give me your thought here, um, is that ultimately the, the biggest victim is accountability. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the biggest victim because accountability to yeah. who? Um, um, the parliamentarians obviously have to vote in relation to... Um, one, whether the, where's the allegiance? Is the allegiance towards the constitution? Mm. The allegiance is towards the electorate or the allegiance is towards the, the, the party? Mm. That's, that is a fundamental question, mm. uh, which, which underpins all this kind of conversation because ultimately it's all about yes. who are you accountable to? If you have the prescript of the constitution, that, that, that outlines the rules of engagement under this kind of circumstances. Surely, that has to be something that has been elevated. But my sense is that um, the the parliamentarians are caught up mm. in party politics, which presuppose that the the constitutional mandate or awareness uh, is is of second nature. I agree with you there, but I mean the parties have, have pushed the line that you are not on in parliament on your own on your own accord. Therefore, uh, uh, as 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 a lot of the members of parliament that were uh, uh, looking at w- swaying away from the party line were warned again to say, look, you're not there because you were. <laughs> so, so they are unlikely to, you know, it, it now becomes the vote of the stomach, literally. <laughs> That's very sad. Uh, you know, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now twenty two minutes after six. I'm joined in studio by uh, Mr. Justice Ndaba. Uh, the current the issue at hand is just we're having a bit of a bite on the the current motion of no confidence against the president. Before we went to the break, the question was um, ultimately the the biggest victim or the biggest challenge uh, facing parliamentarian it is that of accountability. Mm. Accountability to who? Accountability to the constitution mm. first and foremost. Mm. Secondly, accountable to your electorate, and thirdly. To the party, but at, at the thing stands, it doesn't look like. Looks like accountability is that towards the party first, mm. secondly, to a constitution if you're lucky, thirdly to the, to the electorate, mm. and that poses a fundamental challenge. My sense, before we went to the break, my sense is that I don't think majority of people are going to vote on the basis of the principle. They are more likely to vote on material condition associated with the positions they hold. Your take on that endeavor. One part I agree with you fully there, Doc, but you remember in terms of the narrative in the ruling party sectors, there's two issues that seem to be of paramount concern from them. They see this kind of program as one of regime change attempts, you know. So when you see that, and then the second part is that is the 
a, a majority party refusing uh, the dictates of oppositions to say you can determine what we must do. We'll do this on our own accord. So if you, when you speak to some of the comrades in the ANC, uh, that is the two main issues to say, look, we, 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 we are concerned about attempts to overthrow governments. That is why I had on 702, I think, when uh, 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 minister, the, the Minister of Arts, mm-hmm. because he gave one speech on behalf of the, of, of the ANC, one of his uh, uh, comments was exactly that, that there's attempts to overthrow government through backdoor means. So you can see that this is the dominating view, therefore. And I actually like the speech of of Pantolomisa, who says, "Well, you said we must deliver a, 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 a through pass and using the, the soccer narrative. Then we've delivered it, but you guys must now score. You know what I mean? So there's that kind of issue to say. This we see as part of a bigger narrative of uh, uh, overthrowing the, uh, a democratically elected." Government. There are, two po- there are two positions for me on this issue. Mm-hmm. One is it is naive mm-hmm. not to think that you, you, your position in government um, is absolute. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, the opposition made it very clear that the, 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 the measures in place are not necessarily meant against government as such. They are mainly meant against an individual. Mm-hmm. So there's almost like a separate, uh, but I suppose in terms of interrogation and using as a lobby group, you're likely to say, look, this is an attempt for, uh, this is a coup d'etat in, mm-hmm. in effect. Uh, but, but we look, you know, when you look, when you listen very closely to the message or the narrative which the opposition has been putting on the table, for me it has been very clear, um, as a way, because I think they're very much aware of how the, the, the ANC member of parliaments are likely to vote. Mm. As a result, they needed to elevate one single issue. It is that of accountability. Mm. I agree with you there. In fact, but the, the one in parliament is going to be quite complex for a while because you see, the, the fear, because one would say, yes, after the vote, uh, some MPs have voted f- with the opposition. What then because we would say that the majority still remains in the ANC, therefore they could vote for a new uh, acting president or so. But the, the fear was immediately that vote happens, then the, 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 the ANC remains divided afterwards. Therefore, you would not have a solid uh, uh, voting after that. That was the fear. But the reality is that ANC is divided even now. I mean, <laughs> what's what's the difference? We have in ANC lost a local government election on the basis of the division. Yes, and 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 the, the, that current trend it's only going, it's becoming more and more. Um, yeah. The kind of resolutions that a number of institutions have leveled against uh, the president or against the ANC, okay. they've been they failed to materialize. So naturally, the the, the fracturing of the ANC. Is inevitable as, in as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I was arguing earlier on today to say the deputy minister of, 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 of education who was found to allegedly have assaulted a young girl on Sunday, um, has left it thus far to respond to the allegation, even though he had acknowledged, but he had found, he was found to be uh, quite economical with the truth because he alleged the, allegedly just slapped him. Then there were allegations that he actually slept and kicked and so on and so forth. And yet also in other countries, in, in such allegations, you fall on your sword or you recuse yourself while there's a process under, uh, going on. So accountability must take those kinds of forms where even yourself as an individual 
what decisions you take. So I guess you could see where I'm going with this. It all sounds like a culture of impunity yeah. um, is well entrenched because one, you'd have expected a deputy minister to have literally resigned. Mm. Okay. Well, or recuse yourself yeah, if it, you don't want to resign, it, at least. Or secondly, even the kind of, the kind of president, when you look at Mauritius, for an example, or Botswana, yeah. uh, in an African context where you have a, a mature democracy, in this kind of allegation, the president would have would have stepped down, would not have had this kind of prolonged uh, mm. process. But I'm just saying that let's, let's, let's try and yeah. put this on a hold and, and bring in our esteemed guest tonight, um, um, as, um, Etia Melchior. Am I pronouncing Itai? Itai. Itai. Melchior. 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 I beg your pardon. And welcome, sir, once again. Thank you. Happy to be here, Nimrod. Thank you very much. One of the things that, that I'm fascinated about um, in, in the context of Israel, I know you, you, you're doing a, a, a phenomenal work in terms of promoting trade and economic affairs between the countries. Perhaps we what for the purpose of the, you know individuals who don't understand what's the kind of relationship South Africa enjoys or shares with Israel from a bilateral point of view, what would that be? Well, Israel and South Africa are actually quite big trading partners. Uh, our total trade exceeds 10 billion rands. Uh, this is just goods um, that are crossing the borders. It doesn't include trade in services. It doesn't include tourism. We've got more than 20,000 visits going each way every year. That's a lot of money also. Um, and a lot of services. We've been speaking about cyber technology and other services that Israeli companies, ICT, um, uh, IT services, all of these things which are not part of that number. So the number is actually probably even close to double that, that figure. It's quite interesting to see that the kind of um, amount of resource or the amount of the, the trade that is taking place be- between the two countries. What would you say are the mega projects uh, or flagship project which underpins this very strong bilateral relationship between the two countries? So that's interesting because there's not really one big thing. It's it's many small things, and there are very big synergies between Israel's uh, capabilities and South Africa's uh, needs and, and vice versa. And therefore, it's such a strong bond. Uh, we're speaking all day long about uh, no confidence, but we see that, that uh, there's high confidence in trading with Israel, and we see a growth of almost 10% year on year for the last five years of uh, imports from Israel. So that, that, that's certainly a vote of confidence. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree with mm. you more. But maybe let's take a step back, um, because I would imagine in the context of um, uh, what they may not necessarily be flagship project as such, but let's look at the ITC arena, because that's probably the most uh, fast, fastest growing uh, do, um, domain or, or, or sphere between the two. When you were to compare South Africa and Israel in, in the ITC space, how are we, how are we comparing? Uh, so, so South Africa has a lot of skills and it's not shortage of, of skills or infrastructure, but there are certain points which Israel has become world renowned for. For example, cybersecurity, Israel today accounts for more than 10% of global trade in, uh, in cybersecurity products. And we're talking about a country, uh, with less people than Gauteng, smaller than Kruger Park. Uh, Israel has more cybersecurity startups in absolute numbers than any other country in the world. So there are more cyber startups in, in uh, Israel than there are in all of the U.S. Mm. So that's one area. Education technology is very important. We're speaking ab- about uh, about uh, inequality, and, and the best way to solve that is through education. But you need to get the education to everybody, not just the people in, in Gauteng who are 
very well connected. Mm. Um, just this afternoon, I met with an Israeli NGO that's working in, in uh, eight different countries in Africa, helping connect uh, villages to water and electricity and, and electricity. And we saw, a, I saw a video that it did and suddenly a school has light and, and, and suddenly uh, children can learn and read books uh, when it's dark. So, so I mean, education and, and every technology around education is very big. Um, that, and that presupposed to me that the expenditure patterns or the expenditure, uh, regime around research and development is quite high uh, because there's in my sense there's a positive correlation between uh, R&D and 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 the growth uh, what would be the israeli position in relation to R&D because you you can't catapult a country such as israel to where it is because it's highly competitive uh, if your research and 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 development uh space um it it's not quite high because it it, it this is a lesson for me uh, and from from anybody who's listening to the show, so that should South Africa move forward, we have to look at research and development. We have to look at ro- the role of, it, of education. What would what would your sense be around R and D, for an example, as as one critical element um, that you can attribute Israel's success to? So, so it's very interesting that you're asking this today because just last week we had the vice president of the Israeli Innovation Authority here, uh, and she came, had the high-level meetings with the government in Botswana and in South Africa with different departments. Uh, you've got many innovation agencies in South Africa, and they actually all wanted to hear what Israel is doing. Um, maybe because the World Bank has also declared the Israeli ecosystem uh, as a very good system, and it's copying that system today into developing countries uh, to establish a, an R&D ecosystem. Um, and, and I get asked a lot to talk about the startup nation and why Israel is a startup nation. But uh, if we touch just on R&D, then Israel is, is today one of the three leading countries uh, in the world in expenditure on, on R&D. Israel spends more than 4% of its GDP on industrial R&D. Um, and we switch places more or less with the Sweden and, and Korea, uh, and Korea has taken good lessons from Israel and surpasses us uh, sometimes. Um, and, and I think in South Africa currently your figure is, is below a percent and your aspirations uh, are a bit higher, but, but certainly um, spending money on, on R&D is important, but it's not only spending money because throwing money um, on, on and saying it's R&D is not enough. It, it's got to be cleverly used. And, and Israel, I think, even though it's not number one currently in the world, but I think number three, um, they still come and learn from us, Korea, Sweden and other countries, uh, because it is the way we spend the money and how we foster the innovation, how we make the interactions, how we bring together academia and industry how we bring together multinationals with Israeli innovators so the Israeli innovators don't just sit and develop something and three years down the line find out that it exists or that it's not interesting for anyone. Um, so we bring the multinationals to, to work in Israel and that's resulted in a huge uh, ecosystem. We've got today more than 300 large multinationals doing some of their R&D in Israel. Many of them, it's the only country outside of their home country where they're doing R&D uh, because they've found that working with Israelis on R&D uh, pays off. And it's not only the money, it's many other things. Absolutely. I just want to bring in uh, justice here because uh, from a South African perspective, if, if Israel is spending uh, 4.5% of GDP uh, on research and development, surely that's a serious benchmark. I mean, you've alluded to the fact that um, uh, South Korea has now surpassed um, Israel. And fortunately, I happened to be the part of the conversation last week. Um, and I, I got to, I was so... Um, um, amazed and, and, and you could almost see why Israel is where it is today. Mm, mm. 
um, from a South African point of view, I mean, it's almost like insane to expect that kind of economic trajectory if you're spending 1% of your GDP on research and development. Mm. What is it that we're not getting right? You know, well, I, I think, um, uh, thanks Itai for, for, for your comments. And uh, I think one benchmark it is the, the, the percentage spent on R&D. But another factor that we we really haven't spoken about, which we 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 can learn a lot from, is that if you look at the manner and the amount of resources or the the, the that are the is the Israelites uh, put behind startups, um, small business companies, small business businesses mm. to flourish and 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 support given. It's quite amazing, which which um, uh, it's something that we need to to really really look at because in many ways when you speak about the figure of in excess of thirty percent of unemployment um, at this point the biggest employer in the country is government you know so it, it cannot be sustainable if we do that therefore we have to see how and 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 and, and what are the things that they are doing so well that are pushing innovative businesses to flourish because that's where we can learn and that's where we can um we can we can we can uh, look at the things that they're doing behind the small business because those could be the creators of 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 employment in many ways because look at tourism for instance if he says that the numbers of tourists that are coming from Israel to here we need to rethink as well how we look at uh, industries, for instance, because we're still pursuing uh, major industries as drivers of employment, we need to probably begin to look at services and service industries and tourism, because they said with every tourist that comes in, there's close to between eight and nine jobs created per per tourist. So if if we do that and learn those kinds of things, because we we are likely to then benefit, because some of the problems that have been highlighted by small businesses is the difficulty, other than just the issue of funding, but the difficulty of resources, support given to, to small businesses. There's, it's just quite cumbersome in many ways for businesses to, to operate if you look at the requirements that a lot of startups have to, to fall in. I mean, if you look at the, the regulations around startups, um, when they start, there's about 10 million things for them to do and comply with before they could even begin to make... Which means it makes it very counterproductive. Very counterproductive. So for me, that would be another area to learn uh, from, from Israel to say, how is it that you are able to support your small businesses so much? We've seen a lot of their small businesses visiting here. You know, for, for our small business currently, for them to visit other countries, you look... Uh, you, you see those trips with trade and industry, but they're not enough. They're not making enough impact. We need to see what is it that they're be doing that are able to take a lot of small businesses to, to, to abroad for, for business to business linkages for, um, those kinds of things. So I personally would be interested to see, uh, yes, the things like R&D needs to be looked at and so on, but the bread and butter issues for me would be the driver of what support systems we make towards supporting small business guys and how do we assist them to so that they themselves create sustainable jobs. Interesting observation, uh, Mr. Ndaba. But for me, one of the critical issues that 
um, would make any investment worthwhile mm. has to do with education. Yeah. And has to do with, uh, with, 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 um, societal, cultural and values. So these are two, um, uh, important elements which I want a tie to reflect on as, as a way to say this is where Israel is and this is where what South Africa can do differently from the perspective of society, societal values and of course education. So first of all, I just want to say that Israel is not perfect. And for example, uh, when it comes to ease of doing business, Israel is not ranked that high. I can't remember now what the ranking is, and maybe I shouldn't even say it because it's maybe even embarrassing. But 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 it's not one of the statistics that we flout when it comes to innovation and and other and and, and education and FDI. Um, so so it is a problem, and there are challenges, and it's not always um, a, only one thing you can target, as Justice said. Uh, so investing in R and D is one thing, but there are many other things. As part of the ecosystem uh, which you need so one prerequisite is to have good education and as you heard last week from our deputy uh, vice uh, vice president of the innovation authority we are 10,000 engineers short in Israel currently Mm -hmm. because of all the multinationals coming in and and taking the top uh, people to work for them so so there are issues but I think that that maybe the main reason and main driver is is the whole culture of, of, of startups and, and, and uh, innovating yeah. and, and uh, changing the way things are done and looking at things differently. And it's all part of a culture. And, and I think that some of it can be embraced, maybe not as a culture to take back to your family and home, but certainly in organizations can embrace a culture of, of uh, being open, of having employees openly speak up and tell the bosses what they really think without finding their box with the belongings outside. Um, <laughs> uh, having the feeling that, it, that it's okay to fail. And, and in Israel, it, it, it's um, the riskier the are, you are, the, the more you'll be appreciated. Um, and, and if you fail, then you've failed and you've learned something along the way. And, and if, if the culture inhibits uh, entrepreneurship and, and failure, then you won't have people coming and doing big innovation. Absolutely. Uh, let's, let's take a break. We'll come back after a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now uh, 15 to 7 o'clock, and I'm joined in the studio by Atai Melchia, who is the head of trade and economic uh, in South Africa, and also with our regular uh, commentator, Mr. Justice Indaba. The topic at hand is the bilateral between Israel and South Africa. But before we went to the break, what I, what we're essentially talking about is the value of, of education, the value of, um, societal uh, entrepreneurial spirit, if you like, which, which seems to be prevalent in, in Israel and say in, in the context of South Africa, because we always have, we always have to emulate, um, the best practices. Um, and, and what works, obviously, try and, and, and have it around here. You know, perhaps maybe just to try and give us more example, which, ref, which reflect the entrepreneurial, uh, spirit of Israel uh, that South Africans can emulate. What would, what would those be? And what are some of the practical examples that you can give us? So, um, I mean, Jews love to complain and Israelis love to complain, uh, but if you just complain and do nothing about it... Well, I thought, I thought South Africans don't like to complain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most people like to complain, but the question is, what do you do with what the complaint? You are you yeah. just letting off steam mm. or, or are you going to do something about it? And, and Israelis do, and, and uh, a lovely example, uh, and, and there are many 
different as, as many people there are, as many Jews there are, there are that many opinions. And when you ask an Israeli why is Israel the startup nation, you'll get many different answers. Mm. And an interesting one I heard the last week from, from our visitor, um, she actually said that it's a Friday night meals uh, where the family gets together and one is a doctor and one is an engineer and one is a, in business and whatever. And, and they're all complaining about their problems, but then the doctor is saying he has this problem and the engineer, he has a solution. So, so, mm, mm. so she actually said that the, the, the Friday night the family getting together is, is one of the reasons behind. Um, there are many reasons. Um, the military is also a big driver of innovation mm. and that's, and that's from two uh, ways. One, is the, the technology needs and a lot of our cyber comes out of the military, but also medical device innovation mm. comes out of the military. Um, and, and as they say, necessity is the uh, mother of all invention. Uh, and, and that's one thing. But the other thing is also um, we take young people and we give them discipline and we train them and they learn to be leaders at the young age while their peers around the world are maybe students or in a gap year or who knows what. Um, we give them budget, we give them skills, and they learn to be decisive and make decisions quickly based on facts, and that's important when you want to start your business. And, and we see a lot of, of the innovation coming out of the Army's uh, elite technology units. So, so that's also a factor which I hope South Africa wouldn't emulate. I hope you won't need an army, and I don't see any of your enemies uh, uh, <laughs> rising on you uh, in the near future. But, but, but uh, many of the things there again can 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 be learned and can be taught in in Israel. All universities teach entrepreneurship. Mm. So, if if you're learning to be an engineer, it's fine. We need engineers, but you also need entrepreneurs. Uh. So. It, it's always there, the entrepreneurship. Absolutely. One of the critical areas that you raised was the risk appetite mm. in relation to investment. Um, that the, 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 uh, because uh, there's this appetite, uh, for innovation, which means you, you invest in risky, uh, ventures and so on and so forth. Um, South Africa, no, we're very risk averse. Um, we, we, we don't like people who fail. And, and the irony is that you can't succeed if you don't fail. You have to fail over and over and again so that you become better. Uh, what is it that ought to be done differently so that we are able to um, say to South Africans uh, it is okay to fail um, and provided those lessons are, are, are dealt with or, or they are sort of uh, harmonized to a point where you become better? Because for me, that's part of the cultural values um, where you appreciate uh, risk-taking endeavors because out of risk-taking endeavors, in addressing a particular solution, you have multiple of solutions that come out of one particular attempt, so to speak. Um, look, if, I mean, pharmaceutical companies in Israel are very successful. Cyberspace is very successful. These are, are, are results of ongoing trial and errors, which we don't seem to appreciate. Uh, in in this particular country, when when you fail, you you, you, no, you nobody wants to look at, nobody wants to touch you. How do we? Is the, what is missing from the DNA point of view so that we appreciate people that fail uh, uh, to become entrepreneurs? So, I mean, diversity is good, and we don't want everybody to be the same. Uh, but, but there are things, again, more in an organizational uh, culture that can be changed. Um, and last week we heard from, from our guests that, that one of the things that they use uh, when they decide who to invest in because they get thousands of requests and cannot fund all of them is actually uh, how risky it is. And they say we have a risk for appetite. And okay, if, if, if you're opening a business which has no risk, go to the bank. They'll give you money happily mm. if there's no risk involved. But when there's risk and nobody wants to fund you, 
Come to the government and we'll fund you. And maybe two stories. One is, is, uh, is a friend in the, in the venture capital industry. And he once told me, if I have two entrepreneurs coming to me with an idea which is about the same, with the same technology risk, with the same market size, etc., um, and I can't choose between them, and had one of them failed before, I'd choose the guy that's already failed. Because he's learned and he's more mature, and, and it's, and it's, it's no, nothing wrong with the fact that he failed. And maybe one of the biggest failures of the last uh, uh, decade, and, and maybe I shouldn't again be saying bad things about Israel, but uh, an amazing idea, a company called Better Place. Um, they set out to, to revolutionize the whole way uh, electric vehicles are managed because the, the range of the vehicle is always the issue. And they said, well, why limit to the range? Let's just switch batteries. So for your day-to-day use, you're going to work, you're, you're, you're shopping, you're... Whatever you're doing, you don't need the long range. You don't go to Umschlanga every every week, but you won't buy a car that won't get to Umschlanga. So we need to find a way to get you to Umschlanga. So the very easy solution was in the petrol stations. You go into the petrol station, a robot comes in under the car, takes out the battery, puts in a new battery, and off you go for another whatever the range of the battery is. And that solves that problem. And an amazing idea, looking at things differently. Um but still, the company failed for many different reasons, um, and it didn't work out, and money was lost. Was it good? Was it bad? But it, it was good because there are a lot of technology spin-offs, smart grid mm-hmm. management, mm-hmm. and other ideas mm-hmm. that evolved out of this company. So it's true, some money was lost. Um, the thing didn't fly as they hoped, but many other good things did happen. So mm-hmm. the question is just how do you look at, at, at uh, failure? So I'm not talking about now in personal life, but I think that, that a, a company, if a company decides that it's willing to take risk and it's okay to fail and transmits that to the employees also, the employees will come up with good ideas. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, maybe, maybe you know, give us a bit of a South African flair or a perspective on this, because you and I know that the you know um, South African companies uh, and even state-funded agencies mm-hmm. are risk averse. Mm-hmm. We often look at what has worked without necessarily looking at the jockey, because in the process of assessing this project uh, and these these um, uh, adventures, ultimately we have to look at an individual, the mm-hmm. kinds of experiences is acquired over time and the extent to which we can begin to invest in him mm. because that gives us some level of surety that well he's 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 aware of of what could go wrong this time around mm. i know obviously it's, it's a process um we can't suddenly become um um risk averse or we suddenly can't look at issues differently unless you go through our own path so mm. to speak mm. But where are we in, in, in your view as to, you know, South Africa? One of the ways that, um, what I picked, I picked up two things from what he said, which I, I, I want to agree with. You know, one is that really, really, if we want to push uh, an entrepreneurial culture, we need to start at school level. You know, we need to see how we, 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 we go to schools and begin to, if it is not part of the curricula, find ways in which maybe we can have extra classes or things like that of um, entrepreneurship at school level, right? And secondly, perhaps the manner in which we we do funding of small, small businesses in South Africa is probably, or maybe may, many people are not aware, they simply look at DFIs for funding only mm-hmm. because DFIs, despite the fact that some of them 
state sponsored they still use the same instruments same mechanics of banks to assess a business plan so what we could have uh, and make people aware of especially many of the small businesses is the different kinds of funding mechanisms if the issues is funding so that small businesses can be made aware of alternative funding processes like for instance crowdfunding a lot of my township mates are not aware that you know there are such things as venture capitals we take it for granted but they don't they don't know or are not aware in the majority so these needs to be made available to them to say look you don't always have to go to a bank or whatever these are some of the fundings that are available so a lot of these guys can find ways and and i guess once you have a lot of them knowing the alternative funding mechanisms, then some of these risk um, kind of people can get funding outside the normal uh, risk-averse institutions. Maybe I just want to piggyback uh, on, on your last point, Justice, and, and uh, ask a tie here to say um, his views that South Africans, especially in a township, m- people are not aware of what... Uh, investment opportunities or opportunities that uh, could advance the, 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 the businesses as such. Uh, from where Israel sits, what, is there any work or projects that you're doing in supporting or sourcing business from South Africa? Um, so, again, entrepreneurs you have in South Africa plenty, and even someone who opens a spaza shop, uh, or, or I, I see a drive-by place and there was a small table, and now there's a caravan there mm-hmm. with sit-down tables, and that's an entrepreneur. So, mm-hmm. so everybody's an entrepreneur, and and again, funding is important, but it's not the the main thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, the bank will not give you uh, uh, money for for a risky venture, and your government does have agencies uh, such as CEDA, TIA, mm-hmm. and other agencies that 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 will fund uh, R and D, will fund development, uh, even using uh, EU funds and joint projects. So so there are there is I met many of those organizations last week. And there, there is money out there, but it's not all about the money. Mm. It is the education. It is the support. In Israel, we use a lot of mentorship for the young entrepreneurs because every entrepreneur, uh, if you are an entrepreneur, you think you know everything and you're going to conquer the world and, 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 and you know what the market wants and you don't even want to listen to the market because, because you, you're going to change it. And they're, they're all going to follow you. So, so, so a lot of mentorship is needed and we've, we have many veteran entrepreneurs, for example, that that work with the young entrepreneurs and even in the ecosystems where they are if they get funding through an incubator or through a VC then uh, someone will guide them someone will help them and just speaking about the incubators for a second because we spoke about unemployment earlier uh, people don't know but the Israeli incubator system was actually started when we had an influx of Russian immigration and a million people showed up and the market could not absorb and give them jobs and their thinking was okay let's Whoever has a good idea, let's fund them and let's give them something to do for two years. And then maybe after two years of funding, they have something and they can raise more money and we can grow companies. And it's been a success story. Um, so even sometimes when you're not intending uh, to, um, but if you keep doing and keep trying, you're going to strike gold. Absolutely. But our experience in South Africa from incubation point of view, um, um, you know, I think they're very good in imparting technical know-how. 
but it all boils down to one thing and one thing only, uh, because typically in, in this kind of setup, um, you know, you'd have an entrepreneur who says, look, I need money, but um, the, 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 the value of the proposal itself is not bankable as such. Um, but we need to get to a point where the conversation between the bank or funding institution as well as the entrepreneur, there's some kind of meeting of minds. Because when there's no meeting of minds from the perspective of uh, an entrepreneur around, are you, if you've raised a very good point of mentoring, for an example. Um, how, how, how grounded are you from the business point of view? What kind of support do you have? Uh, but again, goes back to education because mm. for you to understand that you are still wet behind your ear in respect to this particular project, you you do have to have uh, a mentor. And sometimes a mentor should not be an imposition. A mentor should be something that you yourself as an entrepreneur uh, are open to it, embrace it, so that you're able to you know to 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 act differently. But again, majority of South Africans say it's money. Mm. Mm. Look, I, I fully actually agree with him. It's not always about money, but if it's not money, it's resources, which is why um, if the more incubations, uh, access to incubations we have, probably is better because incubations, these guys can walk in, plug in, and play, as they say, plug and play. But me and you know that we've had a, a lot of these guys, which is another leg maybe to mentorship and incubators that seem to be a cry from small businesses nowadays is assist me and link me to market mm. markets. Market linkages. You know, so therefore certain programs of, of market linkages are critical to say now um, you have the product, you have the services, how do you access these markets? Justice, you are spot on, and, and actually the Israeli incubators in, uh, have evolved over the years, and today all the incubators have big companies sponsoring them. So when you enter an incubator today, you already have a vision going forward. And again, the, 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 the government is not competing with the private sector mm-hmm. on funding or with the venture capital. The, the government is there to give, to bridge the chasms where, where there's no funding available to make you uh, investable through the incubators. And therefore, when you're an in- incubator, you already have uh, multinationals and big corporations okay. involved, which can then take you to the market. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. That's the model. Yeah. <laughs> Look, colleagues, unfortunately, we run out of time. Oh. We're going to have to leave it there. It has been an absolute pleasure. Atai Melcha, who is the head of uh, uh, Trade and Economic uh, Office in South Africa, and, of course, our regular contributor, Mr. Justice Ndaba. Uh, I think you and I are going to have to come back, uh, Atai, on this issue because I think there's so much value for South African to learn and listen uh, because um, most of the, you know, brought in quite a number of people who listen to the show and there's absolute value to have a conversation with the person of your, your caliber. Uh, but beyond this, um, next time, perhaps let's say, what are the programs that are out there through the embassy, for an example, and how people can participate so that there's more and more exposure um, uh, on, on how people can become you know, self-reliant because ultimately that's what we're trying to push. We're going to push people to be independent and become self-reliant. With pleasure. I'll be happy to be back when you ask me to. Thank you very much. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, have a good one.